It's lasted a long time. We're glad it's over. It's uh, a 100 percent the way it should have been. I wish it could have gone a lot sooner, a lot quicker. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that have done some very, very evil things, very bad things. I would say treasonous things uh, against our country. And uh, hopefully that people that have done such harm to our country, we've gone through a period of uh, really bad things happening. Uh, those people will certainly be looked at. I've been looking at them for a long time, and I'm saying, why haven't they been looked at? They lied to Congress. So uh, the Mueller report is complete. What's next, I hope, will be that he'll come to the committee, release as much as possible. People have been complaining about the Mueller investigation for a long time. No reasonable person can say that concluding a complicated investigation with 30-some-odd people charged, uh, a trial happening with respect to Paul Manafort, multiple people flipping, that to do that and have a report done in 22 months is too long. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan talking to you surrounded by American Girl dolls in my little daughter's bedroom because everyone in my household has strep. So I'm trying to make a home studio. Anyway, we're here surrounded by American Girl dolls waiting for the damn Mueller report. Yes, we're still waiting because all we got yesterday, Sunday, was a letter. Something doubling as a press release for Fox News and Trump's Twitter feed. All right, it wasn't quite that bad. The letter came from A.G. William Barr, a known conservative when it comes to the Mueller investigation. That letter appeared Sunday, and it's it's hard to parse. But one thing's for sure, it is not the Mueller report. The Barr letter is not the Mueller report. So to make sense, though, of what we read yesterday and what we're dealing with in the days to come, I'm going to talk to parser par excellence, Jed Sugarman. Jed is a professor at Fordham Law School. He's a Yale JD and a PhD in history. Anyone with PhDs in the humanities is close to my heart. He writes frequently for Slate on legal matters, and this is somehow his first time on the show. Jed, welcome at last to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. I mean, I wish we could meet under better circumstances, as they say at funerals, but I am starting to think about A.G. Billabar's letter that it's almost like, I mean, maybe this is going too far, but it's almost like the New Zealand manifesto. We shouldn't read it because it is so expurgated. It's so spun. It's very, very hard to get a sense of what's in the Mueller report from this gloss on it. Do you think? First of all, I would say it's not that we shouldn't read it. I think it's more that he shouldn't have written it. Um, uh, it yeah, would have been better for him to have written nothing than to push this through after absurdly 48 hours. I mean, Mueller has been investigating for two years and Barr pulls off in two days a memo that has more of him in it than of Mueller. So yeah. I think my point is that that is that this was actually it could backfire um, because now he really the way he wrote it, he has to deliver the report to the to Congress and to the public. I'm remembering that the great anxiety of six months ago, a year ago, was that the AG, be he Jeff Sessions or Rosenstein or whoever was next, maybe a year ago, would suppress the Mueller report. We wouldn't hear it at all. In a weird way, the Barr memo both suppresses the actual content of the report and gives Trump talking points so he can say he's exonerated. That seems especially insidious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm thinking of the classic quote, when the law is not on your side, 
argue the facts. When the facts are against you, argue the law. And if the law and the facts are against you, pound the table and yell like hell. (laughs) And I think this memo reflects that Barr is arguing only the law and no facts, which I think is suggestive. I think that he has seen, uh, he knows that there are facts and he's a good enough lawyer to know that uh, he would want to rely on more of the facts or at least on more of the Mueller report. I mean, this was my main surprise here was that I I had looked at past uh, special counsel, independent counsel reports like Lawrence Walsh's from the Iran-Contra and like Kenneth Starr's, and they each have executive summaries and uh, overall conclusions that would have been the kind of thing that this letter would have relied on. Got it. Yeah. Tell me about those past letters before we come to the present day. Sure. So Lawrence Walsh writes this mammoth Iran-Contra report in the 1980s. So I went back and looked at it as soon as this letter came out because I, I, I had peeked at them before for other reasons. And I remembered that they were helpful because in a mammoth report, how any good government official or lawyer always puts in an executive summary or some kind of introduction. Um, and there are several reasons for doing it. First of all, it's unmanageable to read a document that large. And you and when you have legal issues, you need to have some set of summaries and conclusions. Um, but it's also helpful in those contexts because of how much material might get redacted, right? So Iran-Contra had a lot of national security concerns. So, of mm-hmm. course, a good lawyer will know to separate out from factual details that could get wrapped into uh, a legal challenge. And especially Mueller is smart, smart enough to know that his report, if it is is overlapping with all kinds of executive privilege questions, just strategically, he would want to write a section that would have absolutely no question that it would uh, that it would create national security concerns or executive privilege concerns. So I, I surely uh, uh, Robert Mueller's report includes some kind of executive summary. The fact that Bill Barr, first of all, did not include anything like an executive summary of his mm. own or of Mueller's, but only has these four sentences from Mueller's, I think it, th- those omissions speak very loudly. Let's talk about Ken Starr for a second and then go to those four sentences. Yeah. So, you know, Ken Starr, I mean, first of all, the the amount of, of events that happen in the Ken Starr report, very, very few set of events. And yet he writes a 500 page uh, document. And there, yeah. there's a one page introduction. And Kenneth Starr from that set of events writes this report for Congress with 11 different potential grounds for impeachment. I mean, Ken Starr was very different in the way that it seems like he he worked through this document in order to make a case for impeachment. To the extent that we can trust Barr's account of Mueller, and I, I want to emphasize that we should take it with a mammoth grain of salt, mm-hmm. Mueller took a very different approach, a very deferential approach, not only deferential to Barr, but I, it also seems like he wrote this special counsel report with less an eye towards um, towards prosecution, uh, but maybe more as a counterintelligence effort and also a report that he knew would be important for Congress because of the way he handled the obstruction questions. Do you think he wrote the report differently or framed it somewhat differently, knowing that it was Barr and not Whitaker or not another AG who would be summarizing it? That's a good question. I thought I, I did think about that. I was surprised that he didn't split it into three parts, hmm. given that it either Whitaker or Barr. I, th- I think it would have been different if Rosenstein were still by himself 
running the uh, investigation because you know he I, he would have would un, would know that that Rosenstein would be unlikely to to uh, invoke executive privilege or, or over redact it or, or or obstruct it. But mm-hmm. I thought because of Whitaker and then Barr, he would split the report into three different pieces uh, chrono- chronologically. One for the campaign and before. Because there's really no uh, meritorious, there's there's no good legal argument that that's covered by executive privilege. Um, then there would be part two that would be the transition, which is mm-hmm. somewhat more debatable. And then there's the then the third part would be from the start of the administration, and more that would be much more about obstruction. So mm-hmm. on Friday, right? So that would that would be a way for him to say, look, we have you, the the courts can stop one of these three reports, but at least two are likely to get out with uh, without. Um, legal challenges to them. So that that surprised me. That makes sense to me. Those three phases seem very distinct. And, you know, obviously, for the hotheads among us, whatever Trump and co have done during the administration might not just be obstruction. But as John Brennan has said, you know, Helsinki stuff that smacks of something even graver than conspiracy. I'm not going to use the word because (laughs) we've just had this very moderate letter from Barr. And so we'll stick to that instead of going to, <laughs> going to hysteria. All right. So the letter does quote Mueller four times. So we have four small excerpts from the real Mueller report. Why don't you tell us about those? All right, first of all, it's worth noting that none of those four sentences is actually a full, complete sentence from the report. I mean, they all, huh. they all are they're, they're little cl- clips it's just striking that Barr couldn't even bring himself to quote a full sentence, let alone a full section. It's like when you do a movie review and the person says, this scene was amazingly bad, and then you just quote, amazing. <laughs> That's right. So, and we'll we'll see. I mean, you know, so, so let's go through a couple of them. I mean, the first sentence that Trump world is trumpeting is uh, the sentence, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. So let's do a close reading of that sentence. And and it does seem like Barr would be choosing this sentence because it is so narrow. So first of all, it's one thing to say uh, the investigation established X. And so the, the uh, it's quite another thing to say the investigation did not establish X. The okay. fact that, right, so it's, it's about proving a negative. Right? You know, the idea is that um, there's a burden of proof. It, Mueller saying that he couldn't establish X does not mean no collusion, no conspiracy. It just means that they didn't have sufficient evidence for making a legal conclusion about uh, a conspiracy, a coordination, collusion. That's a very important distinction. I think many members of the media, when they when they talked about how this report exonerated, this is not an exo- it is not an exoneration to say that a prosecutor did not establish something. And this is another, so one legal point I want to emphasize. The mm-hmm. fact that we never hear from, from Barr what kind of burden or what kind of legal standard Mueller was using here is, mm-hmm. is, is, is very significant and it's a major omission. Later on, I'll, I'll mention this later, but I want to just note that later on when it comes to obstruction, Barr says in the letter he had to consider whether or not to indict and prosecute. He had to take into account not just probable cause, which is the standard for an indictment, but he Mm -hmm. took into account the higher burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, 
And that's right. It's right for a prosecutor not to just try and get the minimum amount of evidence for an indictment, but he ha- a, a, a prosecutor has to think about the prudence of going all the way to trial and, and whether they'd be likely to have a conviction. No pun intended, but is that a higher bar yet because it's the president? <laughs> it's not explicit there, but I actually think that that's part of what's going on. And, and I'll say I'll, I will later defend some of Barr's letter because I think that's actually important. It is important okay. to have a higher threat, a higher bar again, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to indicting a sitting president with the legal questions. So we'll come back to that. I just want to note that that Barr, when he was trying to explain why he was not concluding for an indictment of Trump, he said, we have to take into account the threshold of, of, of beyond reasonable doubt. Well, I assume that Mueller may have made the same kind of, uh, made, made the same kind of explanation. And so if Mueller, if Mueller's report is basically full of facts, but and, and so much so that we could say, I'm speculating, but that there is, um, it's more likely than not that there was a conspiracy or that there's a, there's a significant amount of evidence there was a conspiracy, but not sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. That is a very different set of conclusions legally and politically, right? And so I think it's, I think it is telling that uh, Barr never explains what Mueller's own standard was. And it, hmm. and that standard is also relevant because for um, a congressional investigation and for impeachment, um, it, there, the burden is very different. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, Senate, the House and Senate can decide what burden they need for removal. So, so that's part of why this is a different report for a prosecution decision as opposed to the relevance for Congress and impeachment. So, so that's one piece of the mm-hmm. sentence is, is just looking at the do not establish part that that should mm-hmm. not be exaggerated to say that this is uh, that the report is, that Mueller established there was no conspiracy. It's it doesn't say that at all. This the two other points I want to emphasize and William Salatin made the same point at Slate as well. Um, he said that um, looking at the sentence, it's about members of the Trump campaign. That's also mm-hmm. too narrow, given what we know about Roger Stone, right? I mean, Roger mm-hmm. Stone is an informal advisor, but he's not a member of the Trump campaign. Well, the key, one of That's the key right. questions of, of collusion or or coordination was something that was in Roger Stone's indictment, um, where it says that using the passive voice, a senior campaign official was directed to tell Stone to get in touch with WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. So fine if the if if Mueller says no member of the Trump campaign conspired but i we're all asking what about Roger Stone and who was the who actually did the directing and it it would be important to know if that's Trump um the other person to think about who's an who's not a official member of the Trump campaign is Eric Prince who at mm-hmm. various points um has foreign contacts and lied to Congress about those foreign contacts so it seems like this was a selective selectively narrow um, uh, sentence to draw from Mueller. One final narrowness in that sentence is cor- is the is the part that says um, conspired or coordinated with the Russian government. And keep in mind, again, this is not just about direct contacts with Russian government officials, but all, there are many what they say are cutouts in the counterintelligence world or mm-hmm. or go-betweens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Assange and WikiLeaks was a uh, was a go-between um, with Roger Stone back to the Russian government. So so it also seems narrow and misleading, or at least uh, um, obscuring, to choose this sentence that is so narrowly focused on Trump campaign officials and the Russian government when it's when the collusion could be much broader than that. 
Okay, I hadn't noticed the members of the Trump campaign, and now we're reading this like runes. So maybe you can indulge my other reading also. Is it possible, you say that what's weird is this isn't broken into three parts. Is it possible, seeing how Mueller's indictments often contain, they're like incantations, they're kind of repetitive. So what if this is sentence one, by the way, total speculation for listeners, sentence one, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired. What about if there's the next sentence about the Trump transition team? That would put Flynn in the mix and put his call to Kislyak. And that's also not involvement in election interference activities. So it seems possible that you could have the Trump transition team or the Trump administration either obstructing by covering a little bit, by obscuring the fact of Russian interference in the election. They end up furthering that interference. I think Ben Wittes has said maybe the obstruction is the conspiracy. So that seems possible. The other thing that seems possible in this sentence is the Russian government would go to the GRU indictment, right? That's a military intelligence organization that answers directly to the Kremlin. But the IRA activities, the IRA, that's something like a cutout. Those are oligarchs running it or or businessmen connected to Putin, but maybe not answering to Putin. Right. I mean, this Oleg Deripaska is, you know, is in the mix here, too. Right. I mean, so, I mean, it seems bizarre that given that this that this is both a criminal and a counterintelligence investigation. And look, I, you know, I've got no counterintelligence background. And and, and so I'm just learning on the fly here. But it, it seems like it is obviously important to take into account all of the indirect ways that all kinds of conspiracies unfold. And to 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 emphasize directness seems to almost deliberately uh, limit an inquiry where the the name of the game, the name of the spy game, is indirect contacts, cutouts, implicit agreements through back channels. Or how about getting on live TV and saying, "Hey, Russia, if you're listening," I mean, this you know, Russia, if you're listening, go go find Hillary's emails. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Right. That doesn't have to be. It seems like Barr's report falls into the same trap that uh, that or or purposely uses the same trap that I think the Amer- the American public has gotten into, which is just it's so stunning to see uh, some level of co- coordination in broad daylight on live TV that mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a conspiracy if it's public. Right. So if Trump gets you know after the Trump Tower meeting in June. Trump gets yeah. on TV. Now, we don't, you know, at that point, we don't know in real time that Trump knows about the meeting, but we all know, you know, at least as a matter of common sense, that Trump knew that the that the Veselnitskaya Trump Tower meeting in June happened. And we mm-hmm. now, look, looking back, we know that he gets up on stage and says, I'm going to have a major report. And then we also know we a major speech on, on Hillary's emails. And then lo and behold, mm-hmm. we find out from, from uh, Mueller's filings that Russia started a new wave of hacking right after he gave that speech. Um, so if you're in, in on the conspiracy, Trump would see in real time that he that, that a meeting happens. He gives a speech announcing that, hey, I got the message. I'm giving you a message that this is on. Then there are a new new round of leaks that happen right after that. That is all um, indirect, but it also is a kind of coordination. And then, of course, the the big speech at the uh, at, during the the Democratic National Convention, Ru- Russia. If you're listening, 
Um, I would want to see how Mueller interprets those events and what other facts he has about um, who was saying what behind the scenes. Yeah, me too. You know, when you talk about Russia, if you're listening, and I think I've been trying to sort of work this out on Twitter because I've done a series of articles about Trump's language. You know, we learned from Michael Cohen that he said Trump told him he was trying to send signals sometimes to Russia by things that he said in public, that they were still good. Obviously, that's just hearsay. But Michael Cohen also said that Trump talks in code. And to some of us, that code seems very clear. Even, you know, I fired Comey for that Russia thing. That Russia thing is fake news. Is that that's, it's something like that, that he said to Lester Holt on TV. But that language could pretty easily be walked back by a good lawyer. You know, he said he was joking with Russia, if you're listening. And I fired Comey, that Russia thing is fake news, because I thought to myself, something like, I thought to myself, that Russia thing is fake news. I mean, he could be musing. I mean, this, you know, when he said, I hope you'll see your way clear to letting Flynn go, Don Jr. said he was just saying he hoped something. This doesn't mean anything. And then, of course, Cohen says he doesn't tell you directly to lie. He uses kind of mobby language to say, you know, nice little place you got here. I hope nothing happens to it all by innuendo and implication. And I think we're getting some of this here, which is in obstruction cases, conspiracy cases, you need state of mind, right? So some people just think, well, Trump just kind of accidentally dovetailed with Russia. And state of mind, we get from language, from tweets, from things that he said on TV. And those things are like Rorschach tests, like ink blots. They seem to be able to be read in many ways. Yeah, that's right. So let me say two things. One is many people, many in the media are questioning. In fact, Adam Schiff, Congressman Schiff, uh, uh, second guessed Mueller on what prosecutors normally do to try and establish more detail about corrupt intent, which is to try and get a live interview. Um, I think everything you just identified about Trump would not only is a problem for reading the, the, the tweets and the speeches as Rorschach tests, but who would really look at a live interview a, a, as a real game changer for any of this? I, I, it's all the same kind of Rorschach test and the, and the base would have – no one's surprised that Trump is lying <laughs> all the time. That's not going to change yeah. – that's not going to change the politics here. Obstru- um, it, the, an obstruction case is not going to move 20 Republican senators towards removal. I mean so, so I, I think part of what Mueller's calculus – and maybe Barr's calculus is about is is that politics. But I also want to get to the 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 second. I think this also takes us to the second and the 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 other sentences that we've identified that are quotes Good, from yes. Mueller about this obstruction question. Oh, the the other thing I just want to say about the second guessing Mueller is that it, in hindsight, sure, maybe a live interview would have been great, but it would have been a it would have tied this whole thing up in court, and who knows what would have happened. Um, with getting bogged down for a live interview, I, I, it's hard to it's hard to second guess Mueller on that decision, um, given that the the rewards would have been low anyway, but the risks were high. So let's go to the next excerpt, as you say. Okay, sure. So I mean, so then there's you know one of these sentences is just a footnote that is no has no conclusion. So let's skip that. But then he has two um, sentences about obstruction. Right. The the, the first one is. That is a quote from Mueller. While this report, Mueller's report, does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Okay, that's interesting, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. And and this sentence again has been misread by people in the media. Um, and and so basically, this is the kind of sentence that would demand 
more detail. You know, what what is the background of saying does not exonerate him? And and again, Barr deliberately not offering any explanation for this. I mean, this is what a report is supposed to do: is is not just give one sentence overviews, but actually, you know, the, it would give a little bit more explanation. But the key thing is that as soon as Barr gives that um, gives gives that sentence. He he shows that Mueller basically was giving was deferring to Barr on a judgment. He says he determined that Mueller determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. Mm-hmm. So he hands it to Barr, um, and then Barr says, "This is another quote from uh, the partial quote from Mueller in, in making this determination not to prosecute for obs- prosecute obstruction." That's that's the Barr part. We noted that the special counsel recognized the quote. The evidence did not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference. Okay. And so, again, we have to be very careful in thinking about lawyerly terms. It's not that they um, established that there was no conspiracy. It's, again, that they did not establish whether there was a conspiracy. Again, if the bar, mm-hmm. if the bar were, were high then that means that this doesn't exonerate at all. It just means that there is a, it's difficult to decide to prosecute someone. But the key thing there, I, I think that what Barr is doing in, in the obstruction section is basically saying, um, first of all, he wrote an entire memo to Trump saying basically already stating his, his theory about this. Um, and so it's not surprising that that uh, Barr would in, would would see all of this through that lens. It says more about Barr than Mueller. But here, I want to also say it's striking that we get in this section two paragraphs of Barr's own conclusions after two days than any facts or analysis from Mueller. In the end, yeah. this entire letter is Barr's spin, not Mueller's report. Um, and and uh, and. It seems to me that that's problematic. But on the other hand, the last thing I'd say about this is I, I think this part of Barr's conclusion is defensible. Um, it, given that um, – so, so let me take one step back. Several legal commentators have said that, that um, it's a mistake to say that obstruction depends upon underlying crime because people get uh, convicted for obstruction all the time without mm-hmm. proof of an underlying crime. Precisely because the obstruction makes it hard. That's why people obstruct is to make it harder for the authorities to find the underlying crime. Don't don't give them that bonus. But given that we have the politics and the law that raise questions about indicting a sitting president, I think it's reasonable that Barr and Mueller would say that in this case, we kind of need proof of an underlying crime to make the tougher case for the corrupt intent before we get over all of those hurdles. I, and I think really what that means is it, it's all the, it's, this is Congress's job, not a prosecutor's job at this point. And that means that Barr has a, has a duty now that he made that decision to send the full report to Congress. You mentioned in passing the Barr memo, the earlier Barr memo that preceded his confirmation as AG, that, you know, it sent up a lot of red flags for people. 
But at that point, we were thinking that it might be Whitaker, who seemed much more alarming as a kind of Trump operative. And Barr does have this great reputation. We know that he believes in is committed to broad executive powers. He's yep. said that he's friends with Robert Mueller. There's nothing, I mean, he's not a Brett Kavanaugh. He's not a Whitaker. He's not that strange type that we've come to know, the sort of sessions, this strange, just bullheaded defender of the president at right. all. And yeah. yet he did write this memo that was much longer than his letter yesterday, kind of out of nowhere, yep. trying to tell us why Mueller was not, what, in his jurisdiction or it wasn't legal right. or it could be defined as not legal for Mueller to, what, ask for an interview with the president or charge him with obstruction. Right. If I recall correctly, did, did you and I have a Twitter exchange where we had some theories about what that, that Barr wrote that memo with maybe a gambit, maybe exaggerating his own views to try and, you know, put himself on on Trump's good side. I getting think we his did. Braces. Yes, we did. There was something I, so odd about the tone of that yeah. memo. So I think you and I had a had a had a theory, which I will now say I think was naive. <laughs> which, OK, or yes. maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see. It was so given that I had I went back and looked at Barr's um, background and, you know, it's hard to imagine the George H.W. Bushies being, you know, go even with the passage of 25 years, suddenly becoming Trumpers. Yeah. And so it's I think you and I both around the same time had this uh, had this question. Maybe this was like a deep state move of Barr getting in on uh, getting himself to replace Whitaker, you know, getting himself in the mix. And then he would be the law and order guy. He'd be and he and he might be like Rosenstein, you know, you know, people had doubts about Rosenstein um, and then Rosenstein pulled some pretty audacious moves with, you know, Comey to get himself in the mix. And then suddenly you, you have a Mueller report. So I, okay. I'm frankly, I don't think we know yet. I think I think this letter is certainly not a good sign that um, that that Bill Barr is uh, is 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 a Rosenstein. He, he's coming. He's starting to look a lot more like. Uh, a Trumper. And I think that does not bode well for the fight to get this report out, um, in, at least in a less redacted form. It doesn't seem especially strategic, or does it to you, that he wrote this instead of simply suppressing the report? I mean, he, he could come out with there are no new indictments, because we'd have to act on that. Yeah. No indictments. I mean, he, he could have still given Trump his talking points and been very conservative about executive powers, drawn his own conclusions from it and simply said, we don't have an indictment on conspiracy. We don't have an indictment on obstruction. And that's all there is of this. That's all that we can take from this report. Writing this letter, as you said earlier, seems to open the door for Schiff and Nadler to go crazy and get not just the report, but all the evidence. That's right. And open the door to subpoenas of live testimony, right? So to whatever extent... Oh. Right. So th there's all these moving parts. It, it, if you game this out, what if, if Barr were trying to limit the exposure of this report, he would actually want to wait a little longer to appear to be deliberating. I mean, it's so bizarre. No one expected anyone to to uh, no one expected Barr to have uh, an immediate response with any substance within 48 hours. In fact, it makes it look all the more rigged. <laughs> that that he was so fast out the gate. I mean, surely this report is in the hundreds, if not over a thousand pages. It seems 
so ridiculous that, that no, no, on the other hand, let me and just. And on a Sunday. On a you know, Sunday. Mueller was at church that morning. That's a day of rest for the Mullers of the world. <laughs> and very strange. I mean, there wasn't that pressure, except if you wanted Trump to come off the golf course and call out, you know, no collusion and I'm exonerated. I don't want to overreach, but the pressure, the only person feeling the pressure to be able to crow and do a victory thing was Trump. Even the media didn't expect Barr to move this quickly. Yeah, that's right. One explanation, which which maybe makes sense of this, is that mm -hmm. uh, even though Barr only got the full report on Friday that he had been briefed, uh, that Rosenstein had briefed mm -hmm. him, Rosenstein was in on it. So I don't want to overstate it. But I'm just saying the optics are weird. I mean, we have to have we have to then speculate about how much Barr had previewed. But then it also seems a little bit fishy that you know, that the whole point of a special counsel is to be insulated from the conflicts of an administration. So it, it, it's still problematic that Barr had would have had so much information before the report to make this determination. Um, so so that's so. It's really puzzling why Barr decided to move this way. It just it seems kind of um, like it, it will backfire in terms of the fact that now that he only offered these four partial sentences, um, a court is going to is going to look at this and say that was uh, a step in giving the information to the public, but uh, but an inadequate step. And so if you were asking a court what's adequate. The they're going to I think courts are going to when they look at subpoenas, um, it's it's I hope uh, they will look at this in a way um, that requires more more disclosure. Let's entertain just because we want to be honest brokers differential diagnosis here and imagine that this is a reasonable gloss of the Mueller report that right. Adam Schiff and even and we and people in the media who have you know really wanted to see a certain kind of justice done, even for the stuff we've seen that Trump do in broad daylight, are just not going to get it. That the Mueller report, he's conservative. You know, maybe there were people in the room. I'm thinking of Adam Weissman and Greg Andres, who in the courtroom were much more outspoken than Mueller has ever been. Maybe there were people who spoke for those of us who think we had seen obstruction, who thought that there was plenty to convict, even just in the public record. And then maybe there were some more conservative people in the office who are invested in the institution of the executive branch in the just really don't think that indicting a president or impeaching him is good for the country. They're, they're not they're not Ken stars. They're not gunning for someone. In fact, they give a thorough accounting of the facts and they've indicted plenty of people and this is more like a 9-11 commission report tells us, you know, how we might be able to stop this from happening again, gives us all the details, but really doesn't provide and fairly explicitly concludes that the evidence falls short of obstruction, let alone conspiracy. Right. I think, first of all, I think that's right. I, you might not be describing the team. I think you might be describing Robert Mueller. I mean, Mueller is huh. at the end. You know, he, he, you, I think you just described what may be plausibly and not to be critical, I, I think that Mueller may have seen this as much as a much bigger problem than Donald J. Trump, um, that he looks around the world and sees Russia not just interfering in our elections, but with with Britain and with uh, with with Europe and the rise of authoritarianism. And he wrote mm -hmm. a report that he did not want to be over politicized as a as a narrowly a Trump report with a Trump mm -hmm. indictment and Trump prosecutions, because then you get into uh, 
I'm going to give a bigger defense of what happened with the decision not to indict. Um, if mm-hmm. you if if Mueller had on the day the report came down a whole bunch of sealed, how many people talked about all these sealed indictments, right? If yes. if that had actually happened, the you know Mueller issues a report and all of a sudden Don Jr. and Kushner and Ivanka and um, and and Trump himself, they're all indicted. It would have polarized the report. I mean, we're already mm-hmm. in a polarized environment. And and Mueller may, and also keep in mind, along with what you're saying, m- more Russians were indicted by this team than Americans, right? I mean, we're yeah. not going to see yeah, that's them. That's right. But the point, I mean, I think it, it, we will we will know maybe you know who knows when we'll know this. But this report may have been written again as more of a counterintelligence report about Russians than a criminal investigation of Trumpers. And it may be in the in the long run that that was a good decision. Um, because ultimately we may, you know, hopefully we, we survive the Trump era, but the, but maybe the bigger threat to the world is destabilizing Western democracy. Um, and to that extent, making a report that is intended for the national security apparatus and for Congress in a way that would be more receptive to making Congress more receptive to it, um, may actually be the, the most important decision Mueller has made. I think that's really, really interesting. And the whole idea that you can't indict a sitting president is not to put him above the law, but rather to say this is the job of the legislature to represent the people in making a decision about the current leadership, not but that the Congress isn't the criminal justice arm. That's right. That adds up to me. And that goes to why all the evidence and the report should be turned over to Congress and they can conduct more interviews. Let me run one more thing past you. There was a lot of talk about how impeachment, indictment, various other aggressive moves on the part of either the Justice Department or Democrats could incite a kind of particularly angry far right side of the voters or even the red hats. And that would really destabilize the country even more than it already is. I have a slight fear that the bar letter sends a message to the parts of the FBI and the Justice Department that don't want to see this thing glossed over. I've heard anyway that FBI agents are, I think the expression that someone gave was like pounding down the door to talk to Congress to give their own testimony of things they saw and know about obstruction and conspiracy on the part of Trump world. There's certainly a lot of anger right now, not armed anger, not militias, but a lot of people who don't want to see another investigation thwarted and covered up. I mean, I think of Kavanaugh and Khashoggi all the time right now. All the Senate needed to vote on was, can we give another week to look into Kavanaugh? And they wouldn't do that. You know, they would like, like Bush versus Gore, just stop the recount and move on. Stop the Khashoggi investigation. It's fine. Go on. And that is just a lot. That's an assault on our brains to have that over and over again, not hear out what happened. Exactly. And let me say another thing, too, which is that when the uh, when Trump's Treasury Department was lifting sanctions on Deripaska, they just, you know, oh, no, sure. No problem. You know, uh, Mitt Romney, you know, was supposed to be the the new never Trumper. And uh, so it just. It's and just to invoke Khashoggi, I mean, it it is just dumbfounding. And the idea that there is impunity um, in corruption. I mean, this is a larger concern about, you know, being above the law and the lack of indictments is that when a when a civilization starts to tolerate open corruption 
anyone who start anyone who plays by the rules and and pays their taxes starts to realize that they're a chump um, and that they're a fool. And and this is you know not to be too alarmist, but we actually the rule of law depends upon the most flagrant rule breakers being held to account. And so my one of my just to pick up on one theme you were saying about the the internal world of the FBI. One concern I have about Barr's strategy with this memo was to send a signal, I'm in charge, and I'm, he's going to write a letter in two days because he's the boss, and he's going to send a signal, and he's going to get the FBI in line behind him with, uh, with, a, with a clear statement and a party line. Um, and so, you know, it, it may be that even if the FBI wants to break down doors and, and tell their story, Barr is, is saying he's not going to tolerate it, Wh- which makes me want to wonder, Virginia, if, you, if you're going to share who your uh, inside source is <laughs> from behind the scenes. <laughs> Jed, uh, Jed is referring, of course, oh, wait, not of course, Jed is referring to some tweets I made that some people have told me are ill-advised. But because we haven't been able to see the report, it's only people who have seen the report or have been briefed or close to the report who we're going to get some news from. And I, you know, frankly think that I trust my source on this and I think the public needs to know more than ever. No, I think it was, it's not ill-advised. So anyway, I sort of stand by that decision. And in fact, the three signal communications that I put up from this source all were borne out. I mean, now they're old news. One is that the Mueller report is is rich in damaging information, which is has not come out yet because we haven't seen it. And the other was just don't think that the Barr report is the Mueller report, which is yeah. what we've been discussing today. I think there's some general consensus that, that there's a much much more robust accounting yeah. and reckoning with all this in the Mueller report than we've seen yet. Yeah. So let me just pick up on one final point you made in your last question, which is about okay. sort of the country and the and the anger on both sides um, and and the politics of, of that with impeachment. And I, when I take a st- when I take a step back, I've been talking about making a grounds for impeachment for a while, but I've always had this nagging concern that. First of all, that imp- that imp- impeachment—not just that it wouldn't go anywhere, but it—but to allow the to to resolve this crisis through an impeachment would not only have the immediate kind of backlash that you know we're talking about New Zealand. I mean, who the hell knows? I don't want to emphasize that kind of risk. I think I want to say that it's really about the long-term democracy, and and if the if the Trump world, if the, you know that thirty percent whatever base feels like the elites of the Republican Party, the Paul Ryans, you know, that 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 Trump ran against, you know, took a, took Trump out. They're going to have their own conspiracy theories and it's not going to go away. I think it may be the best case scenario is actually, you know, not impeachment and removal, but a 2020 election that resolves this with the public voting. Um, and it seems like at least the way things are, are moving now, it seems like Barr's letter and Mueller's conclusions make it more about what we do in November 2020 than what the Senate was never going to do in the first place. Judge Sugarman is a professor at Fordham Law, and he writes frequently for Slate on legal matters. Thanks so much, Jed. Thanks for having me, Virginia. So that's it for today's show. Say hello to us on Twitter and tell us what you think. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus. Today's your day to sign up. It is $35 for the first year. That's highly competitive pricing for top quality content. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. 
Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with special thanks to Max Savage Levinson. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.